Uh, hi, welcome. Greg Perry, the historic preservationist uh, here on a very, very human night. Very human night. Um, we're going to change course a little bit here with this episode. Um, just remembering the uh, the podcast are kind of what motivates me, what moves me, and people that have moved me. And this may not be totally as historic as we, we like to think it is, but um, you know, I think one of the great, uh, great uh, actors of the, the film screen, Cary Grant, um, so by the 20th century, um, just a, a classical actor, there's no doubt. So, so we're just tonight we're going to talk about Cary Grant and, and kind of how he, he began, how he got out of how he got out of England, and uh, he got to America. So the beginnings of Cary Grant. So uh, it's just going to start with something that his, Cary Grant's father told him early on. I'm reminded a piece of advice my father gave me regarding shoes. It has stood with me in good stead whenever my finances have been low throughout my life, which has been many times. He said, it's better to buy one good pair of shoes than to buy four cheap ones. One pair made of fine leather could outlast four inferior pairs. And if well cared for, would continue to proclaim your good judgment and taste no matter how old they become. It is rather like the stock market. It makes more sense to buy one good share of blue chip than 150 of $1 stock options. Cary Grant. Bristol is the seventh largest city and the, and the third largest seaport in Great Britain. It is situated to the south of Cardiff, Wales, to the west of Bath, and to the southwest, southwest of Gloucestershire. In 1497, John Cabot, the discoverer of Newfoundland, first sailed to the New World from Bristol. Noted natives of Bristol include England's 17th century poet laureate, Robert Sotheby, William Penn, for whom Pennsylvania is named, and the celebrated Shakespearean actor, Sir Henry Irving. During the first years of the 20th century, Bristol was the designated port of departure for those who wished to sail via luxury liner from England to the United States. It is adored by the rest of the world and celebrated cream sherry. Bristol is also one of England's many great theatrical districts, home to the famous Theatre Royale on King Street, which first opened in 1766 and remains in operation to this day. The other major stops on the British vaudeville circuit at the turn of the 20th century were Bristol's Empire and Hippodrome. All three venues were the first signpost of the journey to Dreamland for the boy whose destiny was to become Bristol's most beloved progeny, young Archibald Alec Leach. Archie, as everyone called him, was the second child born to Elise Marie Kingdon the daughter of an Episcopalian shipwright, and Elias Leach, the son of an Episcopalian potter. Although Elias had a big dreams of one day becoming a famous entertainer, he earned his living wage at a tailor's presser at Todd's clothing factory. The Kingdons generally presumed, in the warning days of the staunch Victorian epoch, that their prudent daughter had unfortunately married beneath their class. They did not consider Elijah as 33, 12 years 
their daughter senior, socially accepted or sufficiently established in business for a man of his age. Nevertheless, the slight, attractive, cleft-chinned, and prohibitively shy Elise did not turn him down when he proposed. How could she? He was tall, slim, dashing, and a charmer. The mustached man of her dreams. She resolutely believed that Elijah's, even in her parents, even that her parents didn't, and was certain that he was he meant it, he promised her that every type of fancy coats and suits that the wealthy he pressed at the factory would one day belong to him as well. That the manual labor in the steamy, windowless shop in which he toiled six out of seven days was but a brief stepping stone to a better life for both of them. Elijah could dream with the best of them, and he knew well how to make at least one of those dreams come true. By the time he walked his 21-year-old wife down the aisle, he had already played through the, f- the field of Bristol's most or at least eligible women. Using his good looks to insinuate himself into their beds, if not into their lives. When he met Elise, he sensed that her father might provide a rich dowry and later on a comfortable inheritance for them both. It was enough to lure him to renounce his wild days and seek Elise's hand in marriage. They settled into one of the newly built working class semi-detached homes along Hutchinson Road, just off of Gloucester, a dwelling too chilly and damp in the winter. The air roughened by the smelly choke of poorly ventilated coal heating, and too sweaty in the clumping humidity of summer. In dire need of fresh stimulation, Elijah soon returned to his carousing ways. At least part of his problem was sexual frustration. Less than a year into the marriage, he discovered he was no longer able to raise Elise's temperature, no matter of what time of year. Her Victorian disposition toward romance dictated that procreation was the only justification for engaging in the fine art of sex. Doing it for pleasure was unproductive, a sacrilege and a waste of time, at least as far as she was concerned. Filled with many splendorous churches and lively music halls, Bristol provided ample opportunity for Elise to worship God, at least as much as the numberless pubs and music halls accommodated her husband's more secular devotions, women. Indeed, Elijah's relapse into Rogueness found easy pickings in the traveling vaudeville companies that continually played the local theaters, where that sort of entertainment itself was seen by Elise and the church folk as nothing more or less than the work of the devil himself. Victorian society believed that no crime went unpunished if the authorities of the state did not arrest and prosecute those who broke the legal code a higher authority would surely avenge those who broke the moral one. Such was the only explanation at least could fashion to explain the unexpected death of her firstborn, John William Elise Leach. She had given birth at home on February 9th of 1899, and from the moment the baby John took his first breath, Elise devoted herself to every need. 
She showered him with all the love and affection she withheld from her husband, who, she believed, had not remained true to her. He was surely the cause of God's retribution on their home when, in the eighth month of life, the child developed a cough, followed by a violent convulsion on the onset of a fever that would not break. John died of tubercular meningitis on February 6, 1900, two days before his first birthday and one day before Elisa's 23rd birthday. She would not allow herself to cry at baby John's funeral. Throughout that solemn service, she sat tearless, cloaked in black, and stared straight ahead into the private world of her overwhelming grief. God had indeed punished Elisa's for his sins, and in doing so, had brought his, his wrath down upon her as well. Taking back the fruit of their corrupted marriage after his burial, baby John's name was never spoken again by either Elise or Elias. In the spring of 1903, Elise became pregnant once more, a sign she believed in a merciful God. She had Elias redecorate his room, and then this was the firstborns and had insulation to the walls and ceiling to prevent any deathly drafts from blowing into the new baby. Archibald Leith, Leach was born on January 18, 1904. Early on, to ensure his good health and moral righteousness, Elise imposed her obsessive orderliness upon the lad, a prudent upbringing that would stay with him for the rest of his days. As a little boy, he would remember nearly eight years later, I was fined for spilling things on the tablecloth. I had a bib, but that wasn't so bad. I had a shilling a week for allowance when I was eight, and I had four bibs, and we only put the tablecloth on the table on Sundays. Elise enjoyed keeping little Archie's hair long and curly and dressed him in frilly clothes that resembled nothing so much as a little girl's dresses. Much had been made elsewhere in his early treatment as the speculative root of Cary Grant's later bisexuality. And while it may indeed have been a factor, this was a common style in Victorian childbearing in pre-Freudian England. A toddler's sexuality was presumed to be non-existent, and the so-called cross-dressing of boys was nothing more provocative than a mother's innocent dolling up of her baby, without regard to gender. Nonetheless, links are links, and Freud did establish that sexual feelings are present in children, and that pre-adolescent emotional connection are often retained, in one form or another, for a lifetime. In his 30s, Cary Grant and his housemate and lover, Randolph Scott, often showed up at costume parties dressed as women. And in his mid-50s, Grant surprised reporter Joe Hymans by admitting that he still often preferred wearing women's nylon panties under his regular clothes when he traveled because they were easy to pack than men's underwear, and he could wash them out himself, which saved on hotel laundry bills. As likely to have influenced the young Grant's psyche and his too-close physical attachment to his mother with Eliza's frequent absences, which deprived him of a father, of a father's normalizing presence. In truth, 
Her husband's nights away from home no longer worried Elise. Instead, she saw them as an opportunity for additional uninterrupted playtime with her perfect little Archie. And yet even as the boy grew more attached to his mother and her positive ways, he still strongly identified on some level with his father. If Archie, Archie had become the surrogate husband to his mother, receiver of her smothering affection and perhaps a bit of her misplaced rage. On some primitive or instinctive level, he probably knew why Daddy wasn't always around. The few nights Elias did stay home, he and Elise had loud arguments over money or the lack of it, which only deepened with the emotional split with the boys' loyalties between the two and secured the groundwork for his well-known lifelong thriftiness and later conflicted views of adult love, his uneasy acceptance of the public's at times wild adulation, the chaste pursuit of women he believed he unconditionally loved, his failure at marriage, his preference for the company of men over women, or the choice of no company at all. My parents tried so hard and they did their best, Grant would later say. The trouble was that they weren't happy with themselves. The lack of money for my mother's dreams became an excuse for regular sessions of reproach, against which my father learned the frugality of trying to defend himself. But that isn't really to say that either of them was wrong or right. They were probably both right. Elias, Jim to his friends, was, if anything, relieved by the exclusion from his fatherly responsibilities to his son. He preferred the aroma of cigar smoke and ale spilled on wood at a local pub and to the hot cabbage and cold wife waiting instead of the cold wife waiting for him at home. Whenever Elias did get to spend time with his son, it was too much more than fun for both of them. When Archie was just five, his father began taking him to the pressing factory on Saturdays where the boy loved to stand amid the loud machinery until closing time, then walked through town holding his hand above his head to reach his father's big his father's big one on Eliza's made his the rounds to the local pubs and the traveling cribbage games. Archie always received two rewards for assisting his father at work. The first was a wrapped candy he was encouraged to fish for with his two fingers in the well-pressed pants Elias wore for after-work activities. The second was the advice of a man who admired fine clothing, who believed that visual pretension, despite one's social standing, was the best way to self-promote. One afternoon, Elias, after noticing the inferior quality of Archie's shoes, gave him a stern but loving lecture about the importance of proper footwear. Elise after thrifty and then then practical, had bought Archie a, a four pairs of inexpensive shoes. It was a kind of thrift Elijah did not approve of. To him, the dress-up shoes his son wore looked cheap and wouldn't last. Better to have just one good pair, he advised the young boy, than several that were worthless. Buy less at higher quality was a lesson Archie would remember for the rest of his life. One of Elias and Archie's favorite Saturday night pastimes was to go to the, a Bristol Music Hall or Vaudeville Theater to see pantomime, a particularly 
raucous and quite popular entertainment where men played both male and female parts. And the male lead was always played by a young and usually attractive woman. And the sing and dance routines of the newest performers. In 1909, the first five years of age, Archie caught his first glimpse of the performer he would be obsessed with for much of his life. Charlie Chaplin was a member of the Carmo Players, a traveling vaudeville group that regularly toured the music hall circuit that included Bristol. A year later, Carno took Chaplin and others to America, a journey from which Chaplin would not return. He became a solo sensation first in New York City vaudeville houses along 42nd Street, and then in short film comedies and triumphed in Hollywood, and he then gave the world, and Archie, the gift of the late tramp. Elias was a bit of a piano roller himself, and soon enough young Archie could plonk out some pretty fancy rhythms on the pub's beer-stained clanky uprights. When Elise learned of her son's musical talent, in a gesture of kindness, perhaps, tinged with paternal competitiveness, she had her father buy a fancy brand new upright for the family living room. The arrival of the piano angered Elias, not because he didn't enjoy the boys playing, but because he hadn't paid for it himself. And his loud but hollow complaints about not wanting to live off her father's charity set off yet another squabble over money that was anything but music to young Archie's ears. At Elise's insistence, Archie began studying classical piano, while at his, at his father's urging, he continued to develop his music hall style. The conflicted direction of the percussive abilities confused the boy, even as it became yet one more focal point of his parents' polarization, to the point where, while he loved to play, he rarely did for either of them. Soon enough, Elise, over the practical Puritan, decided that her young boy's God-given talents, aided by the strong left hand, which he naturally favored, qualified him for early admission to one of the best schools in the area, the Bishop Road Junior School in Blipsom. She was rightly proud of Archie's musical abilities, convinced the board he was fit to take one of the few available vacancies. The only thing he, can, he cons was concerned about was that Archie's left-handedness, something she feared might keep him out of school from allowing him to enroll. Once enrolled, five-year-old Archie played the piano far less often than he kicked the football. And his unusually deft playground skills won him the friendship and admiration of the boys his age and older. With all the, the good food and exercise he got, he spurred it upward, upward like a bean spout, st stretching to a full six foot one before his 13th birthday. What then became apparent to everyone at school, students and teachers alike, was how unusually handsome young Archie was, tall, strong, and blessed with a face that was embossed with his mother's dimpled chin and rich brown eyes and his father's thick black wavy hair and a ready smile. If life seemed better for him at Bishop Road, his absence from home only made things worse between Elise and Elias. Without Archie as the buffer, their bickering became more frequent and always centered on either Elijah's philandering or the lack of sufficient income. More than once, their fights turned physical. For Elias, 
He saw it, and several times the only way to deal with his stubborn wife was to beat her up to improper submission. Whatever things became too intense for them, Elise simply left until things cooled down. It could have been for a night or it could have been for a week. It eventually became clear to Elias that the situation between them was hopeless and that he had to leave for good. Unable to pay for divorce, he figured out a route to freedom by taking a factory job in Southampton, 80 miles southeast of Bristol, near the southern shore. It, they made uniforms for both military and the ongoing Italian-Turkish conflict. Years later, Graham will recall in his revealing description the traumatized instance of what he took as his father's abandonment and his own culpability in helping to drive him away. Odd, but I don't remember my father's departure from Bristol. Perhaps I felt guilty and secretly being pleased, but now I had my mother to myself. Anyway, I don't, I don't remember my father's going, but I missed him very much despite all this, and therefore my, my own faults. In Southampton, Elias quickly took a young mistress by the home of, by the name of Maple Alice Johnson and set up a second household. They soon had a baby born out of wedlock. While back at home, Elise and Archie were forced to move to even smaller quarters for lack of funds. Whenever Archie made an occasional visit to Southampton to visit his father, Elias made no secret of his new, new live-in relationship and rewarded the boy's arrival with a trip to the local cinema to see the latest chaplain, Max Stennett, two-reeler. Archie always laughed out loud at Charlie's put-upon character and exacerbated glances through the camera. Straight at him. That brought a special brightness and joy to the otherwise lonely life of Archie. It was a joy that would not last, though. One day in 1914, when he was 10 years old, Archie came home from school and could not find his mother. With the war interment, relatives had begun to live together and share ration books. Despite their smaller house, Elise had taken in two of her brother's children, both of them older than Archie. Now they silently watched as he ran from room to room looking for his mom. When he finally asked where she was, they said she had gone to the seaside resort for a little while. Why? Archie wondered. Would she do that without taking me along? Without even telling me? And who was going to take care of me while she was away? Elisa's sudden departure deepened Archie's increasingly tortured feelings of abandonment, guilt, and despair that would, in one form or another, stay with him for the rest of his life. Years later, Grant had this to say about his many failed marriages. I made the mistake of thinking that each of my wives was my mother, that there would never be a replacement once she left. I found myself being attracted to women, who looked like my mother. She had olive skin, for instance, of course. At the same time, I often chose a person with her emotional makeup, too, and I didn't need that. What did happen to Elise? Where had she gone? Not to a sea seaside resort, and not for a little while, as his relatives had told him. The story was quickly replaced by another. His mother had died of a heart attack. The news devastated the young boy, 
who send, soon began to act out both rage and being abandoned again, this time by his mother, and his guilt for somehow having caused both parents to leave him. He soon turned to pretty th petty thievery and kept it all. Even then, mostly out of pity, the community awarded him a scholarship to the prestigious Fairfield Secondary School. It was there he met his first girlfriend, someone he would still remember decades later as plump, pretty, and frankly flirtatious, but utterly beyond his reach. The daughter of a local butcher, the girl so turned Archie's head that one day, while staring at her, he walked straight into a lamppost and very nearly knocked off all of his teeth out of the front. With his mother gone, Archie relocated himself to Southampton. He longed to move in with his father, but Eliza said no. Claiming that the woman he lived with and their baby, Archie's half-brother, took all up the room in the house. Archie then volunteered for summer work as a messenger and, and gopher on the military docks, often sleeping in alleys at night if he didn't make enough money to rent a cot in a local flop house. This was wartime, and one of the daily chores was to hand each soldier a life belt before he sent out from the English Channel in a transport ship, many of which were sunk by German submarines only a few miles offshore. Out of this sense of patriotism, Archer refused to accept any tip money from the soldiers for whom he began to run errands for. Instead, he would take a military button or a regiment badge. He coveted these as, as they were a true reflection of his self-worth and proudly wore many of them as he could fit onto each of his belts. Archie reluctantly returned to Bristol that fall for school, still consumed with brief, grief over the death of his mother. He often spent his nights alone in his room, staring at a photo of Elise, weeping softly as he prayed for God to watch over her soul. On weekends, he would take himself to the local docks to watch the schooners and steamships that, he would later recall, came right up the Avon River into the center of town. During these periods, his notion of leaving Bristol forever intensified. While most of my school friends were playing cricket, I'd sit alone for hours watching the ships come and go, sailing with them to far places on the tide of my imagination, trying to lead, release myself from the emotional tensions which disarranged my thoughts profusely. In many ways, his longing to release himself was not all that different from, in many ways, of Elijah's having found a way out of Bristol. Archie wished to escape as well, but no longer just to Southampton. His dreams now stretch much further than that, like his in every Brit's hero, Charlie Chaplin. He wanted to travel to the land of magic and dreams, America. That was where he longed to go. The next series of events have often been described as a luck, lucky happenstance the fateful meeting of a boy and his mother, or as Grant himself would later recall, a coincidence of destiny zoning in on my future. 13-year-old Archie, although at best an average student with a bit of an aptitude for chemistry, was nonetheless befriended by a science professor's part-time assistant, brought in one day to help conduct the class experiment. 
The assistant was actually a close friend of the teacher and an electrician who worked at the newly rebuilt Bristol Hippodrome, which was then replaced, as we know, by the old empire. Archie eagerly asked to be taken backstage to see the which then replaced the old empire. Archie eagerly began to, <coughs> sorry, asked to be taken backstage to see the, the master's modern switchboard and lighting system that the electrician had put on, uh, put in many years prior. It, it was a request his friend happily granted, and Archie quickly learned the technical aspects of putting on a show. He got to watch the performers from the privileged perspective of the wings from where he could see the awestruck faces of the young boys and the first few rows lit by the spill of stage light as it bounced up and down with the light. According to Grant, that's when I knew, like Charlie Chaplin, he too would join the theater and would see the world. Archie's electrician friend then introduced him to the house manager of the Hippodrome, who often took a great liking to the boy. He often invited young Archie to sit with him backstage with the crews and occasionally helped put curtain and lighting cables and change scenery between acts. Archie, Archie did so well, he was eventually promoted to help with lighting. the lighting men handle the special twin arch lamps, or limelights as they called them, as they were known for their tendency to throw a pale green halo around the performers. They hung from the ceiling at either stage, and had to be manually focused to keep the performers in their special sharp double spot illumination. Eventually, Archie was allowed to operate one of the limelights on his own and good enough with it to operate the all-important center moving white at the back of the house. All went well until one time during a performance, he misfocused the center spot on a couple of back mirrors that gave away a secret to a headlining magician's best trick. As the magician's insistence, Archie was permanently barred from ever working at the Bristol Hippodrome again, devastating him. He was overly devastated and vowed never to set foot inside another theater, but soon found himself once again hanging around the fringes of Bristol's many playhouses, spending time with the actors he had gotten to know during his brief career as a lighting man. On the odd occasion, he was even able to get some pickup work at the Hippodrome. When a call boy after school for 10 shillings a week, which is how he first heard about Bob Penders' troupe of young knockabout comedians. Penders was a specialty act whose performers padded their shirts with intricate slapstick numbers, stilt-walking characters, and intricate mime routines complete with watching cost, matching costumes and oversized masks. Pender, whose real name was Bob Lomas, had first made a name for himself as a performer in the tradition of the great Dury Lane clowns before forming his own company. Intending to follow the path of the legacy of Fred Carnot traveling shows, Lomas' entourage, which was decidedly from a family affair, his wife, Margaret, a former Parisian Berger ballet mistress, gave the Pender troupe for the benefit of her specialized training in movement and balance. Although the lead performers 
were Loma's daughter, Doris, his brother, Tom and Bill, his wide-owned sister-in-law and his son. Like all companies made up mostly for young performers, Penders was forever in need of a trainable talent to replace those who grew too quickly, got bored and left, fell in love, married, or went into the military. After getting to know young Archie, Lomas invited him to try out as a member of the traveling company. Archley was beside himself. After hanging on the backstage fringes of the business for what seemed like forever, he was, at last, going to have a chance at performing for the first time. He worked up a series of athletic moves he had learned from the older footballers in school. With a couple of flips he had always been able to do, and also showed that he could walk on his hands, a trick his father had taught him earlier on. Lomas liked what he saw and offered him a position with the company, provided that Elias gave his written approval. Archie immediately accepted and went home, forged a letter of permission from his father, and brought it back to Lomas, whom then sent it off to observe the troop in Norwich. Unfortunately, Archie's first tour ended abruptly ten days later, while the troop was still in Norwich, by the sudden and unexpected arrival of Elias. He had been told by Archie's Bristol relatives that the boy had run away. He quickly tracked his son down, confronted Lomas, and informed him that Archie was not yet at age 14, the legal work age in England at that time. Elias demanded that he be returned to school at once and threatened to press criminal charges of abduction of a young minor against Lomas. Reluctantly, Archie packed his few things, said goodbye to everyone, and returned to Bristol without ever having appeared on stage. Back home, Archie longed to return to the theatrical life and, and came up with a clever plan to make it happen. Years later, according to Grant, he investigated the girls' lavatory in school learning that he drilled a small peephole through one of the walls to watch the girls go to the bathroom. Other sources claimed he re reverted to his old ways and was caught stealing. Whatever the reason, his official expulsion for his responsibilities and incorrigibility occurred on March of 1918, when just two months after his 14th birthday, the school's decision conveniently freed him to rejoin the Pender Troop. That August, Archie eagerly signed a three-year contract, this time actually co-signed by Elias, that officially granted him permission to join Pender's troop. At a weekly salary of 10 shillings with board and lodgings and included the technical training to be provided by Lamas. By now, Elias was more than happy to give his son over to Lamas for reasons that he had less to do with Archie's budding talents and his personal present needs. When the boy got in trouble at school, the local authorities had investiga investigated why he was living with relatives in Bristol rather than his father in Southampton. The last thing Elias wanted was the Bristol authorities sniffing into his personal life. Finally, when Elias discovered that Lomas was a fellow Mason and a family man, he gave his full consent, believing his boy would be well cared for. Archie proved an apt pupil 
when he wanted to be, especially in the more physical aspects of the British music hall entertainment. His specialties became stilt walking, tumbling, and pratfalls, to which he brought his natural athleticism and all the same kind of natural rhythm and timing it shown on the piano. At Lomas urging, he also began to work on his speech to lose his pronounced West Country Bristol brogue. Unable to master cultured English talk, he developed a unique vocal mix of rhythms, raspy voice, and hesitant dictation, the sound of which one day would be instantly identifiable to all movie audiences all over the world for many years to come. For the next two years, Archie and the troupe traveled the British Music Hall circuit, occasionally jumping over to the European mainland and the larger theatrical outpost of the Middle East. By the age of 16, six foot one Archie Leach, with his handsome face, great smile, easy laugh, and natural athletic ability, had developed a charismatic stage presence that brought him to the front ranks of the Pender Touring Company. And then it happened. In 1921, Lomas' organization was invited by famed New York impreso Charles Dillingham, Oscar Hammerstein's chief competitor, to come to the United States to perform at 42nd Street's Globe Theater at the, as the opening act for Fred Stone one of vaudeville's biggest stars. With room for only eight of the 12 resident young men in his company, Lomas was forced to eliminate one third of his male leads. Archie could hardly contain himself when he saw his name posted on the bulletin board along with the other youngsters who had survived the cut. He arose at dawn one the morning of July 21st, the day of the troop's departure and he was the first to arrive at the Southampton docks, accompanied by Elias, who wanted to be there to say farewell. After kissing his father goodbye, they boarded the luxury liner RMS Olympic, which was the Titanic's sister ship bound for America. Also aboard were two of the most famous Hollywood film stars in the world, Douglas Fairbanks and his bride, Mary Pickford, whose marriage has caused an international newspaper and newsreel frenzy frenzy were completing their six-week european honeymoon with a first-class cruise back to the states it was just before leaving for the continent that fairbanks and pickford had signed their historic deal along with chaplin and gj gilworth to create their own studio united artist with the intention of gaining their aesthetic freedom from financial independence from all the other studio hands. When word got out of the Fairbanks and Pickford were on the Olympic, it thrilled the other passengers, but none more than Archie. Every day he watched the people stream in and out of the dining room until he got his nerve up to approach the glamorous couple for their autographs. Fairbanks and Pickford proved remarkably gracious and when Archie asked permission to have his picture taken with them, they proudly complied. Archie told them how much he admired their movies and how he'd hoped that one day to be a great, a greatest physical actor as Fairbanks, famous for his astonishing acrobatic stunts, often filmed in single uncut sequences. Fairbanks thanked the boy and then, to Archie's astonishment, asked if, that he would like to join him 
on his daily on-deck morning calisthenics. Woody, doing jumping jacks next to the well-tanned, immaculately dressed, and perfectly quaffed actor, thrilled Archie like nothing else, and inspired him to doggedly strive to keep himself as fit and groomed as his first, this first famous Hollywood friend. And so it was, late every afternoon while the Olympics steamed westward and the other passengers took their daily naps, played cards, or stole away for a romantic interlude. Archie Leach stood by himself on deck, leaning over the rail trying to see the face of his future. Freed from the last of the prison of his British provincialality, he vowed that once in America he would never again look back on the loneliness and sadness of his yesterdays, left buried somewhere with Elise in her Bristol grave.